I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by the founder and chairman of the AAPI Victory Fund, Shaker Narasimhan. Stay tuned. It's been over a year now since the U.S. elections of 2020. So much has changed and so much hasn't since then. What hasn't changed is my gratitude that you're listening, subscribing, following on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar, and sharing kindly with your friends. So I'm a big student of reflecting and learning from experiences to help inform the pathway forward. And when it comes to political and civic engagement in the U.S. by South Asian Americans and Asian American Pacific Islanders, who better to chat with than Shaker Narasimhan? He's the founder and chairman of the AAPI Victory Fund, a political action committee focused exclusively on building the political power of the AAPI community. Shaker immigrated to the U.S. and has experienced life in rural America as a parent and as a successful business leader in the real estate and housing finance sector. He served on President Obama's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and has served Virginia as a commissioner for the Housing Development Authority. His leadership is truly magnetic, and his experience as a political advocate, coalition builder, and facilitator has helped mobilize active political and civic engagement in the rapidly growing South Asian American and AAPI communities, showcasing the strength of votes and translating this power into policy. Now, last year after the election, I had chatted with Dilawar Sayed, another business leader and AAPI Victory Fund co-founder. So I asked Shaker to reflect a year later on if he thinks we've been doing a good job in holding our elected leaders accountable. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, there's this uh, learning curve that you go through where you first uh, basically realize your best access point in American politics is to write a check. So you go to places, you write a check, you get a picture, and usually what you do is you write bigger checks because you want to be seen with someone who could be president or senator or congressman. Rarely do you run around writing checks and getting with a county supervisor, as an example. Right. Then you realize, you know what, how many pictures can you put on a mantelpiece at the end of the day, right? So you start to get engaged in policy conversations. And then you start to learn that perhaps you don't have to ask something for yourself, but for someone else. And other people ask you because you tend to bring them to these things and they write checks. They call you up and start saying, well, can you arrange for that person to come? Do you want me? You know, I care about this issue. Do you care about it? And if you do, can you influence this? And all of a sudden you become this intermediary that's having to learn an issue and focus. But the real big step way to answer your question is when you elect someone which is all that we're about where we are about gathering votes assisting people in understanding why they should vote for a particular candidate in their possessions and then delivering the the election or being a part of the delivery now what next well mm-hmm. in theory what's next which many communities have grown up into is to be able to say you told us you would do, have you done? Uh, yeah. Because there has to be, a, that's the reward structure for the election, right? Right. Now, caveat, uh, not 
one person out of 435 in the U.S. Congress can't do anything, especially if they're a freshman, yeah. right? They get lucky occasionally, get their name on a bill, but it's quite possible there's no name on any bill. The second is it's quite possible that the issues they care about are out of vogue and they just can't get anything done. Yeah. So it isn't their fault. But what's the minimum requirement? They tried. Yeah. They continue to speak out on it. And here's the most important. They show up in our communities. Mm. So, you know, at this time last year, we were celebrating in some ways such a huge signature in of uh, what's something that's emblematic of, of this in that Kamala Harris was chosen as the vice presidential nominee. As we reflect on that today, what's changed? How, how has, this has this needle actually moved? Are we actually finding that the power is, is there in some areas and is there work to do to actually gain that power in others? So yes, palpable excitement in the community, the South Asian community broadly, a sense of kind of achievement. You know, we made it. Look at this. Wow. Her mother was born in Chennai, right? So, yeah. and she has never failed to use that in the sense of not so much overtly saying, oh, I am, because she likes to say I'm many things and I happen to be an American. But she has used it, like the word that she said, you know, chitti in her, yeah. in her acceptance speech, just enough that it's kept everybody saying, wow. Fast forward a year. We have, uh, there's been a lot of progress on a lot of fronts. Sanity has been restored, which itself to me was enough. I started to sleep at night again. Right. Uh, however, the bigotry hasn't changed. The fact that people still ask because we're not white, where are you from, yeah. hasn't changed. The fact that if you have a Muslim-sounding name, there's an assumption that you are potentially dangerous, hasn't changed. There is phobias uh, around immigration that are now rampant. So the change of... Um, now, President Biden said it really well when he signed the hate crimes bill. He said, we may accomplish by law the enforcement to prevent it surfacing and bubbling up mm. to the surface. But it doesn't mean we have changed attitudes and culture and what's underneath the surface. Yeah. So you don't change hearts and minds in a year. What you do change is the potentiality for the next generation to believe they can achieve. I think we've done that. We've absolutely made people and young girls, as an example, believe that it's possible in America, but it hasn't changed the attitudes of thousands of people who never thought we were the same and potentially think we're inferior. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder one thing. I mean, as it is time, actually, that coincidentally, Prime Minister Modi is visiting the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, again, and, and so many within our community with those deep roots and with those ties to their identities, they, they root their attention to the politics of South Asia, for instance, as it relates back to their existence here in the mm -hmm. U.S. How do we, in some ways, especially for those who are now leading some of the civic engagement, how mm -hmm. do we balance this reality with maybe the pressing need of advancing dialogue about political engagement, about civic involvement, and flip that narrative 
to keep the primary lens on what's going on here as it relates Absolutely. back to So I, it, this frustrates me a great deal because I find the whole discussion about um, politics in India reflecting back primarily due to WhatsApp. And again, this real generational shift. So I'm going to tell you uh, three quick stories. Uh, my son comes home from school. This is 15 years ago. And he mentions to his mother that he had gone to some event and he had met this girl who obviously had an Indian first name. And my wife's listening intently and she says, oh, that's great. I'm glad you did this. What's her last name? And he immediately says, she's from Iowa, mom. And the reason he said that is because he knew why she was asking. Because the minute I give her give you her last name, you'll say, "Oh, she's oh she's Maharashtrian or she's Gujarat." She's not. I'm sorry. She is from Iowa. That's story number one. That's a big generational shift. We're still where we are. We still have this one foot in. We still cross connect. They do not. Period. They don't. And why should we expect them to? Um, second, um, you get. A, a really interesting dynamic with somebody like Pilaver and me. Yeah. We co-founded the API Victory Fund. He was in the room when it was born in October 2015 in the Bay Area. And a, a, a reporter for a major television news magazine starts writing a story about us. And I said, what is the story here? And this is uh, six, eight months ago, 10 months ago during the campaign. And the story was, how did a Hindu and a Muslim in America collaborate to create this organization? That was the story. Had great resonance, by the way, in India and Pakistan. Yeah. Surprising, I got so little hate mail due to it. <laughs> but the fact was, it was, it was a big hit. Yeah. Because, oh, collaboration is possible. Now, I can tell you very curiously that uh, Dilawar and I have never talked once about Kashmir. Um, we have not, because it was not relevant to us and what we cared about and the, the civic engagement and the politics in America. Final story, um, Barack Obama, uh, in, in, uh, before he became president, told us a story. He said, you know, in my uh, dorms at Harvard, I actually had a Pakistani and an Indian and, you know, and a few other people. And he said, I know everything there is to know about the Pakistan-India war. I, I saw the difference in uh, the way that, the food they eat. And to we in America, and he was obviously half black, half uh, white, would never know the difference. Yeah. Would we know that, you know, you and I, Dandekar is a, you know, Maharashtrian name and my name is a Southern, that we ate different foods? Right. That we uh, probably have different incense, that we probably actually pray to a different God. That's complicated stuff. Yeah. So I think that what we should do in order to overcome differences, we actually need to practice the theorem of listening, finding value propositions that are alike, knowing where the common terrain is. And then driving together on the road together for a period of time and concluding, you know what, normal human being, I can do this. Because the next generation of AAPI voters and South Asian Americans in, in particular who are 
perhaps going beyond the just plain opening up their checkbooks and actually running in elections and getting civically engaged at the grassroots levels. Mm-hmm. What are, in your experiences, what have been some of the ingredients for that success now for these folks when, in fact, some of the political power and money infrastructures are actually rooted in you know, the same immovable blocks that we just talked about, right? They're in, rooted in institutions and corporations. So making it, how do we make it simple or, or easier for this younger generation or folks who are now really interested and have the uh, motivations and momentum to do it? How do we make those ingredients more available to them? And how do we make it easier for them to get more engaged? So I'm pleased to say there's been a lot of movement on this. There's a yeah. group um, called Emerge that trains young women leaders. There's a pipeline initiative that trains people of color. There's impact that is supporting Indian American candidates. There's uh, So it's building partly because a lot of young people went into political campaigns, went into consulting. Some obviously ran. Much of the success of our communities, however, to be brutally honest about it, is self-made. I don't think there is a single politician, now they will tell you otherwise because they want your money, who actually simply got there because of the community support. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. So I sat with a group of Latino leaders about five years ago right before the Hillary Clinton election. And I said, I need your advice. I'm, I'm trying to create a, a political movement around APIs can become a voting block. Yeah. They all looked at me and started laughing. And they said, ah, yes, just like Latinos are a voting block. Yeah, you know, we have 36 countries. We actually don't all speak exactly the same language, even though you guys all think we all do. Anyway, sure. I said, but you've had success. And they said, well, we'll tell you how. We planned 20 years. We, in San Antonio, Texas, which is a heavily Hispanic community, we said, um, we have a mayor, Henry Cisneros, who became a secretary in the cabinet for Bill Clinton. In this community, there are two young guys. There's Julian Castro and there's Joaquin Castro. They're bright. One should be mayor. One should become the, uh, a congressman or a senator or a governor. Both of them went to Harvard. They brought them both back. Hokeen is a congressman who, by the way, almost ran for Senate. Julian became mayor and became secretary of HUD under Obama and ran for president, was on the consideration list for vice president. They thought about this 20 plus years ago. Mm. We should nurture and build a pipeline. We should support these people in their education, in their community building. We should help organizations support them, and they will get there. And when they do, they will never forget where they came from, how they got here, what they need to do for all the people behind them Mm. in the future. Now, so does Kamala Harris owe her success to the Indian American community? Well, yes, sort of. Yeah. Obviously, I'm sure the Indian American community helped elect her to district uh, attorney, to attorney general of California, to the U.S. Senate. Uh, we hosted an event for her. She doesn't shy away from asking for our money yeah. or for our support. 
Not at all. But the point is, I feel like you could have found some people like her if people had had foresight 20 years ago and groomed them so that her success in a really genuine kind of way would have been if, the, if this community stood with me, was with me, and I owe my success to it. Sure. I think there's a different emotional tie than I happen to be one of you. I, I want to talk about you for a second. Sure. Um, you're an immigrant. You're an IIT, IIT grad. You're a real estate investment and mortgage capital leader. Were there some touchpoint moments along the way that defined your identity formation from being purely an Indian to an Indian American and, and inform the narrative of, of what you're doing today? I, I can mention a very, very brief history, but when I first came here, my intention was to work in rural, in housing and community development, yeah. not in business per se. So, you know, if you, you're from, you're an engineer from IIT and you want to not be an engineer in your career, you do an MBA. So that's what I did, like a lot of people. So it was a bridge to someplace else. Yeah. But then I got an opportunity, which it would take a much longer story to tell you how I got it or how it happened, but to go to Eastern Kentucky, which was uh, in Appalachia, one of the most impoverished places and still is in the United States, coal mining, and live in a town. And remember, I came from Delhi, uh, which was even in those days, like 6 million people. Sure. And live in a town of 2,500. And in fact, then in a smaller town of 200 for a couple of years and help them revitalize their community. Complete accident of fate. It completely changed my perspective on a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. First, because people don't have a formal education, that doesn't mean they're not smart. Yeah. There's one learning. They didn't know where India was, as an example, when I first went there. So they assumed I was Cherokee or, you know, right. and I didn't actually care. Yeah. I was 22. It didn't matter. What, what happened, though, was I was taken at face value. Yeah. Which is very rare. So can you imagine at the age of 22 being in a foreign place, literally foreign, foreign, and being taken completely at face value? So the only thing that mattered was what did I say I was going to do and did I do it? Yeah. I thought, boy, I've fallen in love with America. Yeah. I'm useful. I did attempt to go back to India, and people in India thought my experience here was completely non-relevant, which drove me back here. Six years of my life were therefore spent in nonprofits and housing and community development. Since then, I've spent 30-plus in the private sector, mostly in banking, real estate, um, and in investment banking. And slowly... Over that period, my passion for the assumption that every human being deserved decent shelter translated into things that I could talk about on a bigger platform because I became CEO for a public company. I had a platform. As a private sector individual, I could say, let's talk about affordable housing and the importance. I could testify to it. I could help politicians understand it. And I realized the power of uh, politicians because they make policy. Mm. And policy is what scales things. When do you remember a tangible potency to that AAPI civic engagement? And to what was there a, a aha moment where you said, "Wow, this mm. is it. This is the this is when I when that switch happened, um, and and the sort of floodgates opened for you." 
to me, it was um, in January of 2019, 2020, um, during the presidential election, we had a number of APIs who ran. Uh, Kamala Harris ran for president, Andrew Yang ran for president. And we were pretty undecided. So we did a poll in the community. We held a presidential forum. We met six candidates face-to-face, -face, interviewed them. And we did a poll. And the poll said in our communities, which, as you know, Indian Americans are the second largest after Chinese Americans, yeah. um, our community cared about, um, uh, was leaning Democratic, 65 70%. It was demanding uh, one thing in our selection of anybody for president on the Democratic side, who can defeat Trump? Yeah. And of all the people they picked and thought had the highest probability of doing that was Joe Biden. Now, in January, February, Joe Biden was struggling. Yeah. I have a board of very diverse people. I have a Pakistani American, a Chinese American, a Vietnamese American, a Filipino American, a Korean American. We unanimously agreed we're going to take the plunge. Yeah. We took and endorsed him. And we went out to meet him and told him, your campaign is struggling. Yeah. But we want to do an event for you in Las Vegas. We want to do one in Michigan. We want to do others. And we did a couple before COVID came. Uh, the shutdowns happened. Main reason was, the aha to me was that they needed us. Yeah. Our vote was material enough in certain places that it could be the margin of difference. So I need you to be in front for me and tell me how to go get that vote. And we were the margin of difference in Georgia, as an example. Yeah. We are the margin of difference in 10 states now. If we can just keep delivering on the promise of a growing electorate that shares the values and holds people accountable when they elect them so that we're delivering for the people who are voting, somebody like a Joe Biden remembers, mm. he acknowledges, uh, they have appointed a ton of people from our communities to office. So the aha moments for me have been around, you know, the fact that mobilization took place. And, and I wonder one thing with that, because of that momentum, because of that energy that's been built, because there's a thread of dialogue now among all the AAPI communities and and carrying that wave sort of forward. And you have the the ears of the administration because of that, mm -hmm. and with some, mm -hmm. some of that capital and currency being, being played. But if President Biden asks you to describe what it's like to today, in the fall of 2021, to be an Asian American, to be an Indian American, as we've sustained so much in the past few years, and we still struggle to empower women and small businesses and and trying to make our way through this pandemic economy, what would you say to him? What would, how would you answer that? We've gone backwards really fast. What we all thought would happen if a leader, in this case, it just happens to be personified by Trump, would stand up and allow bigoted words to come out of his mouth, is that it would allow all those that were also bigoted who felt the same way that he did to surface. Correct? I mean, empowered or whatever words you want, enabled sure. others to stand up and say, oh, you know, immigrants are terrible. They are the defining right. cause of America's failure. So we thought, oh, that's 
that's it. He goes away. We're done. That probably goes under the surface again. No, 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 it didn't. Why? So we've looked at it very closely. We've surveyed. We've tried to understand this. This is sort of the, the nub of the issue. It's because those he enabled are still in power. Mm. That's why. Yes. So it wasn't just it wasn't just one person and the damage that person could cause, but the enabled are in power. In in 18 states, they have passed voter suppression rules that are defy the imagination, given there was little or no problem in the middle of COVID in 2020, because it is designed to make sure that we don't have a voice. Yeah. And it's not just Asian Americans, it's Blacks, it's Latinos, but because they fear that if we were educated, empowered, and went to vote, they would not win. That's it. So we have this valid body of work left, which is we have to remove all the enablers now. Yeah, We have to change the state legislatures. We have to change the county councils. It isn't just at the top, it's all over. So when I I have, I have told the president, look, we've become empowered, but we've also realized how difficult and long this change is going to take. Yeah. So what you can do for us, most importantly, is you can actually execute your agenda and then you can make government work. Yeah. And we can help you sell that if government works, and women are empowered, women are free from domestic abuse and free to articulate and work and fulfill their lives, childcare, provide the support systems that are necessary for them to be full citizens. If we do that, our community will always continue to turn on for Democrats. That becomes your legacy, Mr. President. It's not going to happen in your four-year presidency. It's going to be your legacy. Yeah, that's what we believe to be true, but that this is a journey. Yeah. And it has like a train, it has got many stops, and some of them it'll go backwards and some will stall. But at the end of the day, we've created a movement. Yeah. Uh, our job has to be continue to remind people what we could lose at the one hand if you don't maintain a momentum, but what you have to gain if you do. So it's unfortunately you need fear and you need positive energy both at the same time. Well, I, I know that's being built and, and much of that effort is, is due to, to you and, and your colleagues in the AP Victory Alliance. Um, one final thought here, you know, political engagement and active, activism and advocacy can be challenging, can be brutal, it can be unforgiving. So, so what brings you personal joy out of this work? Mm -hmm. I saw my son's face in 2006. He was, a word was used when he was out doing volunteer campaigning called Makaka. A sitting senator used that word and asked him whether he belonged in Virginia and so on. And many, many people who were brown stood up and said, what the hell is this in America in 2006, by the way? And then we elected a, what we thought was a post-racial president in 2008 and how wrong we were. Yeah, I saw literally my son's face when he realized uh, that for the first time, we had gained real power when people started mentioning not just that silly incident that happened and what was hurtful, 
but at the impact it had in driving importantly organizing in our communities we thought we were immune from bigotry as indian americans after all we coasted in here on the backs of the 1965 civil rights act we didn't have to do any agitating to get there we got here we were already educated we've done well we are wonderful well all of a sudden here's someone calling you names and asking do you belong here and all of a sudden as i remind people getting asked a casual question like where are you from and i say i'm from northern virginia yeah. but being asked again well really where are you from when my son and your son and your daughter and their daughters get asked this question they should never answer it that way they should insist on being americans first yeah. we have to give them the pride and then the power to be able to do that that's the day that's coming okay when they have the power to say i'm i'm from san francisco yeah. i happen to have parents and i have a heritage i'm very proud of but i'm an american the hyphenation should be gone by the time my grandson is 21 years old that's my dream for him well i i know that that is uh a joyful thing to look forward to and hopefully it's happening more and more. Shekhar, thank you so much for for joining us. What a terrific conversation and and I hope you'll come back and join us at some point. Thank you Abhay for all you do and for your service as well. Thank you. And thank you Shekhar for all you do. You can learn more at aapivictoryfund.com and wherever you are, hope your voice is heard through your vote and holding your leaders accountable. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandika. This is Chloe Flower and you're listening to me on Ruckus Avenue Radio.